This morning in the Friendly Forum, Mike introduced us to the idea of becoming a sanctuary church. The congregation of Cedar Lane Unitarian is part of an alliance of churches, including Christian congregations in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. That DMV Sanctuary Congregation Network is working on providing shelter to undocumented people who are subject to deportation by immigration Customs Enforcement, also known as ICE. Sanctuary is a very old idea. The root word, sanctity, means sacred. Sanctuary is a space that is holy. To ask for sanctuary or to claim sanctuary means to find a place that is set apart from normal life, a safe place. A sanctuary could be an oasis in the middle of a desert, where tribes could find water and rest and shelter from the heat and dust. There was an unwritten understanding that the oasis was holy ground that could not be claimed by any particular tribe. Sanctuary can be the beach or a forest trail or your own room at home. Mike tells a story about his Uncle Charles. Mike has a lot of stories. When Charles was a boy and did something wrong, it was impossible to punish him by sending him to his room because that was his favorite place to be. Full of books to read and maps to look at, a place to study history and geography. My mountain house in West Virginia, where I lived for 12 years, was a sanctuary for me. A quiet place in an oak forest with a gigantic 300-year-old oak tree right beside the deck. I could watch all kinds of birds, squirrels, deer, and a very large salamander who lived under the deck. Another sanctuary place for me was the Episcopalian Holy Cross Monastery in West Park, New York. I visited there on many occasions in the 90s and again in 2010. There's a cloister walk between the chapel and the monks' quarters with a massive oak tree hundreds of years old in the middle. You can take personal retreats or participate in seminars that are offered year-round. My first one was a writer's retreat with Madeline Lengel. Others were led by Brother Andrew Calhoun, a Scottish monk, and these were weekends of Celtic spirituality, music, labyrinths, walks, seminars, and discussions. Everyone who visits Holy Cross for a weekend or longer study participates in the daily life of the monastery, which follows the Benedictine rule of work and worship. Each of the monks has work to do in the monastery and the local community, and interspersed with their writing, managing the grounds, spiritual counseling and teaching are the worship times. As with many ancient spiritual practices, the day begins at sundown with Compline at 7.30, and then the great silence begins. Then Matins at 6 a.m. and Eucharist at 8.30, which ends the great silence, and then Diurnum at noon, Vespers at 5, and the closing Compline at 7.30, ushering in the great silence once more. A second concept we're looking at this morning 
is hospitality. Today, hospitality means being a host, inviting guests into our home, providing dinner or a party or a temporary place to stay. Mike's granddaughter, Julia, is majoring in hospitality at James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. She is learning hotel management, restaurant management, marketing, even a short course on wine and how to open the bottle without popping the cork. I always thought popping the cork was the best part. But hospitality is far more serious practice than being a concierge at a Trump hotel. For millennia, travels have relied on people along the road for food and shelter. In order for that to work, a certain level of trust was necessary. After all, the travelers are putting their lives at risk in the hands of their hosts. And the host, in turn, has to be sure that the guest won't kill the household and take over the land. This is one of the defining themes in the Game of Thrones. The whole story starts with a serious breach of hospitality. When the young Prince Bran discovers the visiting queen in bed with her brother, and the brother throws Bran out the window. The other families in this long-winded and complicated story are constantly breaking the sacrament of hospitality, either because the guests murder the host or vice versa. Now, there's a Bible story about Sodom and Gomorrah, which is mistakenly assumed by most post-Enlightenment people to be about sex. It isn't. It's also, I have to say, it's also described as a text of terror because Lot offers his daughter for rape. But he only offers, he doesn't carry through, and anyway, that's not the point of the story. Let's hear it from the Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Genesis 19. Two angels were sent by God to check out how many evil people lived in Sodom. So they came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot, a nephew of Abraham, was sitting in the entrance to the city. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down his face to the ground. He said, please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you can rise early and go on your way. They said, no, no, we'll spend the night in the square. But he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast. And he baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded Lot's house, demanding that Lot bring those strangers out so that they could know them. In other words, so that they could sexually assault them. Well, Lot went out of the door to the men, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let them bring them out to you, and, and you can do as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they replied, stand back. They said, this fellow Lot came here as an alien, and he would play the judge. Now we will deal worse with him than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near the door to break it down. But the angels inside reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. 
And they struck with blindness the men who were at the door of the house, both small and great, so that they were unable to find the door. Then the angel said to Lot, You have anybody else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Well, this story is about the most serious breach of hospitality imaginable. Not only is Lot distrusted by the people of Sodom because he's not originally from there, but the people demand that Lot betray his own hospitality and abandon the angels, his guests, to the mob. Hospitality is a sacred trust between guests and host cannot be violated. Hospitality is sacred trust ensured the sustainability of life itself in a hostile world. I would say that this is still true. If we abandon the practice of hospitality, there will be no safe place, no sanctuary for any of us. Which brings me to beloved community. I suggest that a beloved community is a place of sanctuary where a radical trust between and among the members and friends is essential. The old medieval monasteries were examples, as are places like Holy Cross Monastery today. Sanctuary plus hospitality equals beloved community. Today, our democratic way of life is in danger of being disrupted, weakened, and destroyed. Worse, our home planet is also under siege. Unlike the legendary Lot who made a bargain with God to move to a safe city, there is no planet B for us. So what can we do? We here at UUCF take some pride in defining ourselves as a beloved community. By that, I think most of us mean that we love our community. We are open and affirming of all people. We don't discriminate against anyone on any basis. But I think we also acknowledge that this beloved community is not perfect. We wonder why we have so few people of color attending our services and participating in our programs. We've had conversations about how to be more multicultural. We've had a few conversations about cultural misappropriation which is the use of non-white people's music and spiritual practices without really understanding what they mean in the culture from which they come. I think this is most egregious in how casual we are with American Indian practices, especially the Lakota. Another example of cultural misappropriation is the freedom songs from the 1960s civil rights movement Now, I've quoted Issei Barnwell of Sweet Honey in the Rock several times in this context. In a weekend seminar I attended with her at Kirkridge near Allentown, Pennsylvania, back in the 1996 or so, she said, I teach black music to white folks because you all might need it someday. 
And I have been of the opinion that that day is here. But just singing the music without having some visceral feeling of what it meant in the context of getting beaten up by the Alabama State Police on the Pettus Bridge, or the profound shock and sorrow at the deaths of the four little girls in that Sunday school in Birmingham, Alabama. It can, it can amount to cultural misappropriation if we don't experience a similar visceral feeling for our own future and a determination to truly overcome our immersion in white privilege and supremacy. <coughs> Creating and nurturing a beloved community takes hard work. We can't just declare that's what we are. We can't just hang that Black Lives Matter banner or put slogans or signs in the yard. We need to be willing to look at what's keeping the other folks out. One condition to look seriously at is our worship service. How much authentic, truly deeply felt response ever happens? What about the God problem? What about the Jesus dilemma? Another condition to take extremely seriously is what is allowed and what is prohibited by our bylaws. We had quite a fight about that in our meeting last Sunday. I believe we need an ongoing conversation about several issues that were roundly defeated in this last process. But that's what it takes to build and nurture a beloved community that continually looks at how we might offer sanctuary to undocumented fathers and mothers facing deportation and separation from their families. How do we create a safe space to lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, and trans children? We need to struggle with how we share our sacred space in a condition of mutual trust. That is the meaning of sanctuary, hospitality, and beloved community. Now, I want to take a moment to remember three incidents from this past week. One, the killing of four people plus the gunman outside a UPS facility in San Francisco. Two, the shooting at the baseball park in Alexandria that seriously injured Congressman and in majority whip Steve Scalise. He was very nearly killed and is still in critical condition today, facing more rounds of surgery. And three, the acquittal, the acquittal of the policeman who shot and killed Philando Castile in Minneapolis last year, while his girlfriend live streamed the whole thing on Facebook. These are all incidents of gun violence. All are indicative of a profound absence in our society of any collective sense of beloved community, hospitality, and sanctuary. We have no trust, no sense of the holy, no acknowledgement or visceral experience of relationship. All we feel is fear, loss, and deep alienation. And I see our congregation here as a microcosm of the greater community. We are divided regarding our attitudes toward gun control, community policing, immigration, and race. We find conversations about these issues to be difficult, but we must have these conversations and we must somehow define our ways of being together 
so that our policies and procedures reflect sanctuary, hospitality, and beloved community. And so the struggle continues. <laughs> 